From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihe Razazan. Nearly three decades after Omar al-Bashir came to power, the Sudanese regime is facing a formidable challenge posed by a fresh wave of unrest, which began in northeastern city of Atbara on December 19th. Protests, which first erupted over a government decision to triple the price of bread, has swiftly escalated into anti-government rallies, marches, and work stoppages that have rocked several cities and towns. So who are the protesters? What are their demands? What role do the civil society groups play in these protests? And what is the genesis of the economic crisis that the country is experiencing? To answer these questions, Vominas Shahram Agamir spoke with Khaled Madani, Graduate Program Director and Associate Professor of Political Science at McGill University. The protest began on the 19th of December in uh, the city of Atbara. It was a reaction to uh, the implementation of austerity measures, in particular the reduction of the subsidies on bread as well as fuel. And so, of course, that tripled uh, the price of bread in Atbara, in particular in the region. And uh, the result was uh, really a very, very strong protest in Atbara, then quickly spread to the surrounding urban uh, and semi-urban towns in the region, not only in Atbara, but in the surrounding towns of, uh, for those who are familiar with Sudanese geography, uh, Berber, Karima, Dongola, and Al-Qadarif. Those were very, very important towns. And so uh, it really begins in that region, in the northwestern region of Sudan. And then quickly, of course, it, uh, it really uh, transforms into a much wider uh, protest or wave of protest that uh, quickly engulfs uh, Khartoum, the capital city. Uh, so on the 19th of December, it becomes a, a really kind of full-blown uh, protest. A day later, it spreads even more to Port Sudan or the city on the Red Sea, which is very significant. And by uh, the December 23rd, you have something very, very important that occurs, and that is the emergence uh, of a new organization called the Sudanese Professionals Association, which is, uh, as I'm sure maybe you, you know and others who've been following the events in Sudan have discovered, is a professional association that includes uh, unions of doctors, lawyers, engineers, uh, teachers, and uh, those unions of the pharmacies, pharmaceutical uh, union in the Sudan. Um, And that becomes a really important catalyst for the spread of the protests, not only in the capital city of Khartoum, but throughout um, the the country, really. And the reason for that is that the Sudanese Professional Association becomes really the coordinating body uh, that coordinates or is coordinating these protests. So that date is very important. That is uh, December 23rd. A couple of uh, days after that, the Sudanese Professional Association attempts to go to the the headquarters of the government, the National Congress Party, or the ruling party, to hand over memorandum calling for the removal of Bashir. So this becomes a really significant turning point in terms of demanding uh, not just reform, but the uh, removal of the government, and in particular, the ouster of uh, Omar Bashir, the president, who's been ruling the country for three decades now. So that becomes a really important pivotal point. I'm giving you some of the important highlights that changed the course of the protest. In the new year, on January 9th in particular, uh, we witnessed then the largest protest. Uh, protesters 
in really the, the thousands, uh, marched to uh, Parliament to deliver yet another memorandum uh, in the city of Umdurman. That's where the Parliament building is. And something very significant happens that really uh, kind of gets the world's attention to the extent that the global media is following the events. And that is that, you know, you have live ammunition and uh, tear gas, of course, that has been uh, what the government been doing to quell the protest. And they attack a hospital in, in Umdurman. The, the security forces enter the hospital, use live ammunition and tear gas. And this is uh, recorded on video, goes all over social media, uh, not only in Sudan, but, uh, but abroad. And of course, not only is it a violation of international human rights, but it is really significant in the sense that it mobilizes not only the doctors' unions, but others, because it ends up being an appalling massacre with at least three people shot uh, and many others injured. So this becomes a pivotal, yet again, very important um, kind of a turning point in expanding uh, the anger and also the momentum of the protest. Uh, and then a couple of days uh, later, something that I think your listeners and you in particular uh, would be interested in, uh, because it's very important in terms of the region when we talk about the significance of these protests for the, for the region itself, and that is on January 11th, you have what has become ritualistic part of protest in Sudan, and that is that following the Friday prayers, the protests uh, really engulf uh, Khartoum and Umdurman, the greater uh, Khartoum uh, area, the capital city, as many as six mosques witness protests. But what is significant is that protests, and this is very important because I was in Sudan, of course, at the time, what was significant and different in this situation is that protesters begin chanting slogans within the mosques themselves. Historically, out of deference not only for religion but for the imam in the mosque, mostly once the prayer the Friday congregational prayer is completed, protesters or demonstrators, you know, protest outside of the mosque on their way home or towards uh, a government building uh, or the ruling party's headquarters. In this case, on January 11th, you had mosques in Umdurman, in Khartoum, uh, where protesters were protesting within the building. And in uh, at least two very important incidences, you had the members of the congregation actually banning the imam who supports the government uh, from actually completing his khutbah or his sermon. Uh, in one case, you had the, a Salafi imam by the name of uh, Abu Hay Yusuf, who's very, very well known in Sudan as a big supporter of the government and the regime, who was asked actually to uh, step down from the pulpit and uh, was accused of not supporting the protesters and supporting the corrupt Islamist regime of the government. So this becomes a really important kind of marker in terms of protesters um, undermining the legitimacy of what uh, in Sudan we call, of course, the government-backed imams in these mosques. So that becomes a really important uh, marker in terms of the nature uh, and the kind of new developments that, uh, that these protests have really generated. The current wave of protests in Sudan, can you tell us how widespread they are? On January 14th, something that I really want to emphasize occurs. And that is these protests that historically have centered around, in general, uh, with uh, a number of important exceptions, in the Great Khartoum area, are joined uh, or expand to Darfur. 
And that becomes a really important uh, signifier in terms of the real expansion, not only from the central part of the country and the northern part of the country, but the western part, the westernmost part of the country, the Darfur uh, state, which of course, is, as uh, most of your listeners know, has been a victim of a great deal of violence on the, perpetuated by this regime. Uh, and these protests engulf both northern Darfur, uh, the capital of El Fashir and the surrounding towns, but also uh, Niala, which is the capital of southern Darfur. Uh, and this really is very, very significant because really for the first time you have um, hundreds and hundreds of Darfurians who in the past have been generally reluctant to join these protests that begin in Khartoum or in the northern regions as part of this wide-scale protest that is really, in my opinion, having of course studied and followed of the country for so many decades is extremely significant. Um, and this galvanizes not only Darfurians, but the entire country uh, and really gives uh, added energy, so to speak, in terms of the calls for Omar Bashir to uh, step down. Uh, protests continue. There were protests and that were uh, met with a great deal of violence today. On January 14th, you had seven states, because uh, your question also asked to what extent have these protests expanded throughout the country. Uh, they continue to be persistent. In some cases, they're smaller than their initial spark, so to speak. So in Alpara, where you initially had thousands of protesters in the first few days, now you have protesters in the hundreds. But that doesn't mean that it's not significant. What is extremely significant and, and is worth highlighting is that the protests are persistent. They continue uh, just uh, um, uh, as we're talking right now, you have uh, at least seven states or provinces in the Sudan that uh, have really rebelled. Uh, these include, of course, the Khartoum state, uh, Jazeera state, Red Sea state, Northern state, Eastern state, the White Nile state, in addition to that four. And I'm, I, I'm naming all of them just to emphasize the broad swath of uh, an expansion of these protests. So altogether you have about, uh, these are conservative estimates, uh, not from the government, but from human rights agencies of uh, over a thousand arrested. Uh, the government says only uh, maybe upwards of 20 have been killed, but we know the number is far larger, uh, definitely over 40, but I would predict that, uh, or I would surmise that that is probably also a very conservative estimate, in addition to those who have been tortured and detained and continue to, to be detained. So what we have is a, a new development of protests that encompass of various parts of the country expand outside, uh, begin outside of Khartoum in the peripheral so-called areas or regions of the country, uh, in the provinces, so to speak. Uh, and of course, Khartoum remains now the center of organization, mobilization, and also it is where security forces are meting out a lot of their violence in order to quell these demonstrations. So this is by way of giving kind of uh, um, an emphasizing that, uh, number one, they continue to be persistent. We're now in the fourth week of these protests. Uh, this is the longest uh, kind of wave of protest uh, we've had um, in Sudan. 
and that is extremely important to, to highlight. We also have uh, an expansion of the protest throughout the country uh, that is also in scale, is unprecedented with respect to the many protests that have occurred in the past. And we also have a new um, organization, a coordinating body, so to speak, the Sudanese Professional Association, uh, that has uh, very effectively, quickly used social media, including Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and of course, uh, uh, WhatsApp uh, as a mobilizing tool. Um, you can just look into their Twitter account, as I've been doing, or Facebook, and you'll see that they make announcements in terms of not only encouraging protests, but also coordinating uh, and scheduling protests. So where we stand now is then uh, by Thursday, another protest is being announced or um, uh, by the professional, uh, Sudanese Professional Association, and it is in many ways a prelude to something even potentially uh, equally important and uh, something that we really need to look for and emphasize, and that is political general strike on the part of a, a group of trade unionists, the professional associations, and a number of, uh, of labor unions as well in the country. So uh, the third, Thursday pro protest is supposed to be a prelude, a preparation, so to speak, uh, for uh, a call on the part of the Sudanese professional association, as well as political position political parties, for a general strike. So what are some of the more common slogans uh, chanted in these protests? It's not unusual for such a spontaneous protest to have a wide range of demands, but what are some of the key demands that you can identify in this protest? Some of the slogans are very familiar to those who are familiar with the Arab uprisings in the region, particularly in late 2010, of course, 2011, Tunisia and Egypt. And that is the popular slogan of al-Nizam, the people want the regime to fall. That is a really important rallying cry and slogan. It was actually utilized immediately in Al-Bara, in the protest in Al-Bara. Uh, but there are other slogans that I think uh, are very particular to Sudan and these protests um, that distinguish them from the repertoire of slogans contention that, uh, that were utilized in the Arab Spring. Um, so one of the most popular ones is uh, Salam Hurriya Adala, Peace, Freedom, Justice. Uh, that becomes uh, a really important rallying cry, and it, of course, indicates the demands of, uh, of these protesters. Um, another one which I think is uh, really important, because when I was in Sudan, it was emphasized to me, uh, and that is Silmiya, 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 which translate as peaceful, peaceful, peaceful. This is a very, very popular slogan. I would argue that it's being utilized even more than the Arab Spring uh, slogan. Uh, and the reason that it's important to highlight is because it is a slogan utilized by activists to make sure that the protest uh, and the protesters utilize nonviolent means in their demonstrations. That is, that they do not kind of meet the security forces with violence and therefore give excuse, of course, for the government and the regime and the security forces to enact and implement even more violence against them to quell these demonstrations. So that's uh, really uh, important to, to highlight. Another important slogan that I emphasize here, because I mentioned the expansion of the protest in Darfur, and it is being utilized uh, very recently uh, over the past week in particular, and that is a slogan associated with, translated, is Nizam al-Unsuriya, racist regime, and Kulina al-Balad Darfur. Uh, we are all from Darfur. 
Uh, and this has been utilized not only in Darfur, of course, but even more so in Khartoum itself. And that is to make sure that there is a connection being made between what are essentially Arabized Northerners with their uh, brothers and sisters in the Darfur region. So in terms of the slogans, some are very similar to the Arab Spring, but most, I would argue at this point, uh, are very specific to uh, encouraging a particular modes of action and also at the same time uh, making sure to expand solidarity across the country. Uh, more specifically in terms of your question about what the demands, uh, the demands of the uh, Sudanese uh, Professional Association and of the majority of the political opposition, the political parties, is for the immediate dissolution of the regime, the removal of Omar Bashir from his presidency and leadership in the country, and transition to democratic multi-party system. Here, the emphasis is on building or having a transitional period of four years, not just one year, uh, that would be administered or overseen by a technocratic qualified uh, group of independent individuals and people from the, uh, from the different unions, and then preparing uh, for multi-party elections in what most would categorize as a much more secular, liberal, democratic system. This is really important. And the majority of the opposition, the civil society groups, the Sudanese um, Professional Association, as well as the main political opposition blocs support this. There is, of course, another group that is opposed to what they refer to as a soft landing or a negotiated settlement, um, and they would prefer that uh, there would be an immediate removal and elections that would be held right away. So there is a little bit of, uh, of tension or disagreement, but in general, these are the demands that were similar to the demands of previous protests that led to the overthrow of military regimes in the past. You mentioned the Sudanese Professional Association. Do we know of other classes and social groups that are participating in the walkouts, rallies, and marches in Sudan? Uh, yes, um, you have the civil society groups, which is affiliated to uh, the Sudanese Professional Association. Uh, but there is a network, and I interviewed uh, some of them, uh, separate from the Sudanese Professional Associations when I was recently in Sudan. And this is a broad network of uh, civil society organizations that now are uh, very firmly part of the protest. And they represent uh, women's organizations, they represent NGOs, non-governmental organizations, also journalists who are part of the network of civil society organizations, uh, faculty professors actually in the, in the academy, in the universities. So that's a really important uh, social group that is long-standing civil society activists that are not part of the Sudanese uh, professional associations, which is really a trade union and professional unions, an umbrella of trade unions and professional unions. There also, and I want to emphasize this, uh, the youth movements that in previous shows when I, I spoke to you, I emphasized that is youth groups that have uh, mobilized in the past and now are also part and parcel of these protests. And these uh, youth are particularly important, uh, not so much in terms of their number, although that's important, but also in terms of the kind of their uh, technological savvy in terms of being very active on social media and uh, facilitating a lot of these protests, which is really important to, to keep in mind. 
including supporters of political parties. And this is very important to emphasize, because in the past, political parties or the supporters of the main opposition political parties did not actively participate in street protest. And what we see now is that um, many of the major opposition political party members and supporters have caught on, and they're very much part and parcel of the protest. One important example is protest outside of a very important mosque in Umdurman that is the kind of the mosque of the, the Ummah party, of the leader of the Ummah party, Sadiq al-Mahdi, and they participated very strongly and joined the protesters as well. Although the trigger for the ongoing protests appears to have been the rise of the price of bread and fuel, as you mentioned, Sudan has faced a mounting economic crisis over the past year led by a severe shortage of foreign currency. Talk about uh, Sudan's economy and what are its main characteristics and why is it performing so poorly? Well, the background to, um, it has performed poorly for a number of years, but in terms of the, for a number of decades actually, at least since the 1970s. But I think the background to these particular protests, which your listeners would be interested in and would also explains the context of the protest in terms of the economy, is the separation of or the secession of South Sudan uh, in 2011. That becomes key because prior to that, as I, I know you're aware, Sudan and Khartoum benefited a great deal from oil exportation. So in the period between roughly 2007 and 2011, actually the economy in Sudan in aggregate terms was performing well, at least in terms of very low inflation and, of course, revenue coming from oil uh, really registered a GDP for Sudan of uh, 70% during that period, not surprisingly because of 95% of the revenue was coming from oil. Now, uh, following the secession of South Sudan, this is where the deep economic crisis and the catalyst for the protests really begin, and that is having lost uh, or given up, rather, two-thirds of uh, its oil resources because most of the oil is in the south. Immediately, Sudan... Khartoum witnessed very deep economic crisis, a shortage of, of course, hard currency, rising inflation. And in addition to that, of course, sanctions continued against the Sudan economic sanctions. Uh, and that led to a deep economic crisis that forced the government in 2012 in particular to impose austerity measures that were suggested and advised by the IMF and the World Bank in order to deal with its inflation and also to reduce its budget in order to uh, get the economy back on its feet, so to speak. And so that period, uh, especially after the secession of South Sudan and the imposition of uh, or the implementation of IMF austerity measures is what sparked the first really important anti-austerity protest in 2012. That, of course, is the beginning of real grievances, economic grievances on part of many in Sudanese civil society. So that becomes a really important aspect. What has happened recently is that the economic crisis has even deepened. You have not only a shortage of foreign currency, but what I want to emphasize here, because it was emphasized to me in Sudan, and that is something that is extremely crucial, and that is the complete mistrust of the banking institutions in the country. Um, and that is extremely important because you have the rise, of course, of the black market in the country. There is a 
deep, very strong shortage of hard currency. In addition to that, in order to try to limit or uh, the rise in inflation, which is skyrocketing, I think it's at this point almost 70% annually, uh, the government has limited withdrawals of uh, even local currency from banks. You have people uh, lining up at ATM machines and are unable to withdraw their salaries. That becomes a really important source of grievance. The banking system, uh, commercial and the state banks, uh, only give very limited amount of currency. And the result has been that people no longer even deposit in banks and prefer to keep their, their funds and money in their mattresses, so to speak. Uh, and so now you have a real kind of collapse of the banking system. And that is something that we haven't seen to this extent in the past. Uh, so if you add all of these together, the implementation of austerity measures, as well as the, the real essentially kind of collapse of the banking system because of lack of trust in the banks, you have a real kind of source of grievance among a wide range of Sudanese, not only middle class, but of course, across the, the social and class spectrum. There's a dramatic devaluation of the Sudan's currency, thanks to these austerity measures. Has the Sudanese regime always been pursuing an economic model based on these imperatives of uh, the new liberal capital? It begins in the mid-1970s, uh, as was the, is the case with many African countries and some Arab countries, where you had, in the context of what were essentially centralized economies, and Sudan was one of them, uh, by the mid-1970s you have the kind of turning towards the IMF and World Bank and the United States and the imposition uh, or the, the beginning of the liberalization and the kind of neoliberal model. Um, it was, of course, as is the case and was the case of the majority of African countries, a result of a great deal of indebtedness. So um, by the time that the Jafar Nimeri was ousted, uh, the military uh, leader in the past in uh, 1985, Sudan had a debt of $8 billion dollars. And there was no uh, seeming recourse on the part of the leadership but to implement austerity measures and follow neoliberal prescriptions in order to get debt forgiveness and, of course, loans, conditional loans from the IMF and the World Bank. So it, this model begins in Sudan in basically the same period uh, that it began in the rest of the African continent and also many of the Arab countries. What's important to know in the case of Sudan is that, that this was very much promoted also at the level of civil society by a, a very um, energetic and, at that time, very strong Islamist movement that wanted to overturn the kind of policies of the past, but also implement what they called a policy of empowerment for the Islamist activists and the members of the Islamist movement in the Islamist um, Sudanese Islamist leaders, it's a policy that they called Temkin, which literally in English translates as empowerment. And if you were to look back at the interviews of the leader, the late leader of the Islamist movement in Sudan, the very kind of uh, well-known leader, Hassan Turabi, he very much kind of indicated that the neoliberal model would be the best model in order to empower the economy on the side of the Islamist uh, movement. And so it was a policy that were promoted by the Islamist movement. Movement, and it was a policy that benefited the Islamist activists at the time. It uh, accompanied the expansion of Islamic banking. It accompanied the expansion 
or rather the displacement of those who were uh, part of the previous regime. So uh, just as Anwar Sadat uh, in Egypt used the neoliberal model uh, to bolster his own um, constituency, the same occurred in Sudan. So it begins in the mid-1970s and continues to this day, but uh, it has a longer history. So it started around the same time or even before the shift in the Islamism in Turkey where you have the emergence of the AKP and Erdogan's faction creating this Justice and Development Party, which is a new liberal party, essentially. So it, it kind of runs similar to that, doesn't it? It does. I actually read a lot about the Turkish example of... Uh, <laughs> the so-called Turkish tigers, uh, the Anatolian tigers, the phrase that is used for the Islamist and neoliberal activists and elite or bourgeoisie in Turkey. Uh, So it's very similar to to them. And in fact, Turkey uh, is very close in a a variety of ways ideologically to the Sudanese regime, but also Turkish investment in Sudan and its cooperation with the Islamists in Sudan is something that is very, very strong at the moment. And you can see it when you go to the the capital city of Khartoum. The economic relations are really important. But yes, a neoliberal model that's implemented by a variety of Islamist activists across the spectrum, it is on one hand a way to undermine the constituency that was really built up by the period of socialist state-led development uh, that displaces those that were really the clients of those uh, regimes of the 1950s and 60s and even early 70s. And of course, even more importantly, it uh, provided the avenue and legitimated this kind of rise of what I call the Islamist uh, bourgeoisie in uh, the case of the Sudan and also in Turkey. You can also say the same in the case of Egypt. This is a very kind of regional, transformative period where Islamists really emerge in the context of this new neoliberal economic model in these countries. That's Professor Khaled Madani of McGill University speaking with Shahram Agamir about the ongoing popular uprising in Sudan. We'll hear more after a break. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. These protests appear to have started spontaneously with none of the uh, traditional political parties playing a notable role in them, as far as we know. You mentioned something about the leadership of the protests. You mentioned the Sudanese Professional Association. Is there another layer to this leadership, and what are the methods through which the grassroots activists mobilize, given the challenges of mobilization under the reign of an authoritarian regime, such as the one we have in Sudan? Yes, you know, when I was in Sudan, uh, I arrived December 23rd, uh, a few days after the initial protest, and then I just came back 
Uh, I was there for three weeks, and as soon as I arrived in the airport, immediately I was talking to some Sudanese that I didn't know, and they immediately told me about the protests, but they also told me about um, how the government had closed the universities, closed the secondary schools, closed the dormitories in the universities in, in the capital city of Khartoum, in the great Khartoum area, and told the students just to go home. Uh, without giving them any transportation. Immediately, as soon as I arrived, I knew, number one, that protests were extremely important, that the government had great anxiety about them, but that the government miscalculated, that they felt that these protests, understandably, were similar to those of the past, where uh, students, in particular at the university and secondary school level, would be at the very epicenter of organization. Um, And this is why they really went uh, after the universities and the secondary schools. And they arrested uh, quite a few college professors. They did. Those college professors come come in later, about two weeks later, with respect to the emergence of the Sunni's professional associations. University professors had announced that they would be protesting, and before they even were able to participate in their protest outside of the security forces, entered the university and arrested them even before they began their protest. Uh, These are natural constituencies that that uh, joint protest, but it has not been, at least in the recent past, we did not see university professors actually participate in protest in the way that they're doing now. Uh, and they've also signed a petition, putting all their names down, um, asking for Awad Bashir to step down. And that is something that is, is very, very important to keep in mind. With respect to the protest in this instance being spontaneous, I wanted to really kind of make sure to emphasize that that is not necessarily the case. In the coverage of Sudan and in many of street protests in other countries as well, there is uh, this uh, assumption that these street protests somehow are spontaneous, that people suddenly hear about uh, price hikes of bread and they immediately go onto the streets. It's this classic notion of bread riot, so I guess that's, that kind of lingers in our minds. So. Absolutely. <laughs> it's, uh, it's really usually the, the narrative is that you have imposition of austerity measures, uh, price hikes, inflation, and then, of course, bread riots. And the, there are multiple articles and books on, on this issue. The reason I mention this to you in particular is that in the past, when I have spoken to you on this program, I, I think I emphasized what was happening in Sudan in terms of how people were organizing in the opposition against the regime in a variety of informal ways, including the building uh, of informal types of unions and networks. I think I remember very specifically uh, talking to you uh, in this program a few years ago following the 2012, well, some years ago. 2013, actually. 2013. The protests in 2013, yes, you talked to us. That's right, uh, which was very pivotal. And at that time, I think I told you that because the government had part of its policy when it took over was to dismantle or co-opt the traditional uh, labor and trade unions, that what Sudanese activists were doing was establishing informal unions, including doctors' unions, including engineers, including pharmacists. And these really are the bedrock of the kind of protests we see today. Adbara, as you probably have read, is actually a, a relatively affluent town uh, or city. And it has historically been a site of very strong labor union organizing because it was the place uh, of the construction of the railroad, uh, the headquarters of the Sudan Railroad. Was uh, the Communist Party strong in that area? 
Oh, it's extremely strong. In fact, the Communist Party was really ascendant in that area. And labor organization actually preceded the, the independence of the Sudan in 1956 because of the British, of course, established the railroad. It is in Arabic called, and I always like to use these Arabic terms because I think that they say a lot, Balad al-Hadid wal-Nar, which means it's a city of, of steel and fire. This is how it is commonly known in the Sudan. And the reason for that is that it has a deep political culture of activism. It is also a relatively affluent uh, and very highly educated cadre of, uh, in the population. Um, and so Agbara, it's not a coincidence that they have a political culture of organization. The railroad economy has been neglected, but you have the rise of the cement industry and even um, mil- military industry, or the, mil- or the building of military uh, ammunitions in, in Alpara. And I asked a lot of people from there about the specificities of that. I emphasize that because rather than spontaneous, um, Alpara really is uh, home to very well-coordinated long-standing uh, networks of organization and labor, and it is no coincidence that they, they begin these protests first. The Sudanese Professional Association, when I say that they emerged officially, I do not mean that they were not there in, in their different separate parts, so to speak. As I said in 2013, the Sudanese Professional Association is essentially uh, the new formulation or the establishment of an umbrella of what was already existing in the past and what had already mobilized against the regime in terms of the wave of protests that begin at least since 2011 and continue to the present day. Of course, we have, of course, a history of popular uprising in Sudan. But uh, for the current period, it's important to, to really emphasize that if there was not already an organizational structure and networks that were, have, had been active, you really wouldn't see the quick expansion and the breadth and depth of these protests, which is really important. Now, the second part of your question, I suppose, is the issue of the traditional political parties. One of the big questions at the moment is, and has been in the past, is to what extent would the traditional political parties really play an important role in these protests? Uh, there's always a conflict between the protesters what, that represent what we call the modern forces in Sudan that I just mentioned, and the traditional political parties that, on the part of many Sudanese, uh, feel that these political parties simply hijack these protests in order to have a quick transitional period and then reinstate themselves in political power and government in the, if Bashir was to go, for example. Some of them were in the government just till recently. I mean. Absolutely. It was part of the national uh, dialogue that was announced in 2015. So you have one party that is called the Reform or Islah Party that joined the government, and it was, it's led by Ghazi Adabani, who was a longtime supporter and disciple of uh, Hazrat Turabi and supporter of the Islamist movement, who decided that to branch out or rather form a reform movement to, in his words, reinvigorate the Islamist movement in Sudan. He joined the government as part of uh, this national dialogue and a branch uh, of the Ummah Party that joined the government led by Mubarak al-Fadl after he split from the, the leader of the large Ummah party, the, the, one of the largest traditional political parties. It's significant, as you pointed out, that uh, because of these protests, they actually formally removed themselves from government and issued a memorandum and even 
went on satellite television and on social media declaring their complete support for the demonstrators. So at the moment, you have a close coordination between the protesters on the street, so to speak, and the traditional political parties. These include what we call really three factions, a Sudan call, which includes the Umba Party and the Democratic Unionist Party, in addition to, very importantly, two parties from Darfur, the Justice and Equality Movement and the Sudan Liberation Army, Mini Manawi, from Darfur. So two Darfurian parties are part of also this Sudan call. And you have also the National Conference Party, which is essentially led by old-standing leftist Communist Party and the Baathist and Arab Socialist Party, which is also part of the opposition. So these are very, very important opposition parties in addition to the Sudan call. So it remains to be seen how much this relationship continues if the protests deepen. But so far, all indications are that there is complete agreement in terms of the major demand of removing this government, this regime from power and Omar Bashim from power. Khaled, how are these protests different from the ones in 2011-2012 as well as the ones in 2013? Well, it's an important question. I want to, the reason I think it is an important question for a variety of reasons, but there's always a comparison made with respect to these protests uh, and the series of protests in Sudan with the Arab uprisings. And in many cases, it's legitimate. But from the Sudanese perspective, among scholars and activists, you will understand that they routinely emphasize that the history of popular uprisings in Sudan is longer historically and deeper. And that is that very famously in 1964, we had the first popular uprising that uh, overthrew a military regime and installed democratic government for a short period of time. It was called the October Revolution, very important in Sudanese history. Of course, that was undermined by a military coup uh, in 1969, led by Jafar Nimeri. And then yet another one, uh, another popular intifada in 1985 uh, that overthrew the dictatorship and the military regime of Jafar Nimeri and led to a short period of democracy in the country until the Islamist-backed regime of Omar Bashir took over in the summer of 1989. So Sudanese always liked to emphasize that there's a history and a deep culture of popular uprising and also experiments with democratization. But in terms of the most immediate series of, of demonstrations, the ones that or protests that, that, that begin in January 2011, the first ones were definitely inspired by the popular uprisings in Tunisia and in Egypt. They were short-lived in the case of the January 2011 uprising, but they differed in the sense that they were still immature, for lack of a better term, in terms of some of the Sudanese mobilization dynamics that would, uh, let's say, truly undermine this regime. The more important uprising following that was really the summer of 2012, because those were really the real first uprising against uh, anti-austerity measures uh, implemented by the regime. It was led, as I think I wrote and talked to you about, by female students at the University of Khartoum, and they spread uh, very widely. We begin to see in 2012 the beginning of the expansion of the protest from the central part of 
the country, and particularly the capital city of Khartoum, to you know cities that maybe your listeners are not familiar with, but Alubaid in the central part, and uh, also the Red Sea city of Port Sudan, and also a little bit in Darfur, even in 2012. Uh, that becomes uh, really important. They were really mobilized uh, much more by the youth movements, specifically Garifna, which in Arabic means enough, were fed up, and Sudan changed now. Two youth movements really spearheaded those protests, and they were squashed by a lot of violence. And it was really the first articulation or the first action against specific IMF measures or austerity measures implemented, including the raising of taxes and increasing the prices of petrol and fuel and, and the lifting of subsidies. So that's why they were stronger than 2011. And they differed in the sense that they expanded beyond the capital city, which is uh, really important. September 2013 is another very important period because, once again, these were protests against um, austerity measures. But it was also a period where you had a great deal of violence meted out. You had at least 200 uh, people killed by security forces in just the course of two days. And by Sudanese standards, especially in the capital city, it was nothing short of a massacre. And it really galvanized uh, a host of other organizations, including these informal associations and civil society groups um, uh, against the government. It expanded the opposition against the government because of the, the actions of the security forces. And of course, a lot of this violence were perpetuated by para, um, paramilitary um, uh, security forces. And um, it really begins to undermine, or not begin, but it increases uh, um, the kind of grievances of the population uh, throughout the country and, of course, uh, undermines the Islamist project of the regime. So 2003 uh, becomes uh, really important. And, of course, they, again, were a result of the lifting of uh, fuel and, and cooking gas subsidies. So every time the government implements um, these austerity measures, uh, you have a wave of protest. Uh, and the reason for that is not just because of economic austerity and um, uh, issues of, uh, you know, um, kind of living conditions. But uh, as I mentioned, I think in the previous program, a real understanding that this regime is enmeshed in corruption to such a high degree, and their economic policies were not only harming uh, the Sudanese population, but they were also benefiting the kind of corrupt networks of the regime. And so uh, the issue of corruption becomes a really important rallying cry uh, beginning in 2012, but of course it increases in 2013, and now it is one of the most central reasons for these protests, that, that kind of uh, the call for political reform, accountability, transparency, and as one Sudanese activist put it, you know, um, you, you know, if you're Sudanese, you do not have to have eyes to see corruption in the country. Khaled, if the goal of the youth movement and the grassroots opposition, Sudanese professional association, for instance, is to remove Mr. al-Bashir from power and dislodge the regime, are they considering other tactics beyond street protests, uh, which we all know street protests have their own limitations? Are the protesters or the organizers looking at different forms of civil disobedience? You mentioned preparation for a general strike. We have noticed that informal labor unions and associations have entered the fray. 
Uh, yes, absolutely. I think the reason I narrated some of the prior history of uh, these protests is to emphasize lessons learned. There's a learning curve here, which is extremely important. Uh, and also the reason I emphasized a very important slogan that is much more reflective of the Sudanese case than others, and that is activists being called upon to make sure to emphasize in their slogans, Silmia, Silmia, Silmia. That is, number one, that protests have to be nonviolent, and number two, that this would be a prelude to other forms of activism that would not only expand the opposition and the grassroots movement, but would really sustain the movement and also meet the objective of these demonstrators and protesters, and that is the removal of Ahmed Bashir from power. And so what is happening now is a great deal of discussion uh, spearheaded by the Sudanese Professional Association, emphasizing and preparing the demonstrators for acts of civil disobedience, that is, work stoppages, general strikes. And the doctors, for very good reason, the Central Doctors' Union in, uh, in the Sudan has taken the lead in actually calling for civil disobedience, and they actually have been the first to, on their own to, to uh, hold a strike from their hospitals. And that becomes a really important kind of uh, indication of what the Sudanese Professional Association is interested in doing, and that is, as I said, following the protests this week, and that uh, there would be a call for civil disobedience, a general strike, and to be enacted by the labor unions, doctors' union, engineers, um, lawyers. The idea is to have a very wide general strike, not only across the professions, but across the country. So there is a great deal of emphasis in terms of learning from the past, including what is to come after. So the Sudanese Professional Association is really emphasizing this issue of having a transition in which technocrats rather than politicians would really oversee the transition. This is something understandably class-based because many of these professional associations are middle class, lower middle class, and even elites, and certainly highly educated. And they feel that technocrats would be the best kind of group of people to not only oversee a transition to democracy, but also enact economic policies that would try to get Sudan out of this deep economic crisis. So yes, this is something that these activists have learned from the past and the mistakes and also the fact that previous protests have not been successful in achieving their objectives. So we'll see how that goes. We have to watch closely in terms of uh, the protests upcoming and also the, how the security forces, the national intelligence and security um, establishment and other uh, security forces uh, deal with these acts of civil disobedience that are being talked about and hopefully implemented. We'll see. Clearly, the regime has used brutal tactics against the protesters, using live ammunition against the protesters. But in addition to the stick, the regime has also attempted to pacify a frustrated public by offering them carrots? Well, that's a, a really important question because at least in the greater Khartoum area, and when I say greater Khartoum, I mean Khartoum North, Khartoum, and Umdurman. These are the, the three towns that are represent the capital city. The government has announced that they would increase the wages of civil servants, and they have lifted subsidies on flour and then lowered the price of bread and made it more available. 
path. And so in places where you, you would see longer lines when I first arrived in Sudan, by the time I left three weeks later, you did see, at least in middle-class neighborhoods, you did see, and lower middle-class neighborhoods, you did see bread that was available. The interesting point about that is that that no longer is enough. That, that carrot, as you mentioned, and the idea of co-opting a segment of especially the middle class not to participate in the protest is not working precisely because, as we said at the very beginning, this is no longer a bread protest. This is a protest where political grievances and political demands have come to the forefront. And as many Sudanese activists say, there's no turning back because it's not just about putting food on the table, although that is central. It really also is about an understanding that the only way forward and for the development of Sudan is to have political reform and to remove this regime. Now, some would disagree with that in terms of how that should come about, but the political grievances here are so strong across a wide spectrum of, uh, of groups and, of course, the demonstrators and throughout the country that these carrots are no longer sufficient. And this is what uh, the regime is really surprised at at the moment, that these demonstrators, despite some of the carrots that are being doled out, that these demonstrators and protests continue unabated. And also, there's an ingenuity in terms of how the protests are coordinated and how they respond and interact with uh, the security forces in ways that, uh, that has surprised the regime and made these protests more sustainable. Let's talk about the regime itself. Uh, during the 2013 protests, we saw how the divisions within the ruling bloc widened. Today, we seem to be experiencing a similar development. Some high officials in the government have resigned, uh, while Mr. Bashir has sacked some other officials, including the health minister. How prevalent and significant are such developments and such rifts within the ruling bloc? They're very significant, I think, that because they are really determined the scenarios that people are thinking about, and that is that would there be a kind of a palace coup, that that is with the military or someone in the military take over. I'll give you a very important example. Uh, some people who are casual observers of Sudan were surprised when Bashir, a couple of weeks ago, made a very surprising statement saying, well, he would be willing to step down uh, for a military person or for the military. And many people thought that that indicated he was willing to, to step down from political power. What he was really doing for most Sudanese is he was trying to appease uh, the military and make sure that, that he as an individual and his ruling party, the National Congress Party, would have the support of the army. In other words, what is happening now and the, the fissure, the fault line that everyone is observing or looking at very closely is a potential uh, conflict between Bashir himself and army officers, particularly middle-ranking officers in the Sudan Armed Forces. This is very important. So in terms of the structure of the regime, and it is a regime that, rather than a party, so to speak, is that you have Bashir at the apex of, of the ruling party. His own cousin is the prime minister, so you can imagine that it's a very small a clique of relatives and friends that make up now the ruling party. And then you have the Sudanese armed forces that so far have been loyal to the Bashir personally, but we see that 
there are fishers uh, in their loyalty, particularly in the areas outside of Khartoum and also in Umdurman, where there are indications that the armed forces have, in some cases, uh, if not taken the side of protesters, have tried to defend them from the kind of lime um, ammunition and uh, the force of the National Intelligence Security Service and the paramilitary rapid support force, RSF, which is basically a group of guns for hire or mercenaries, so to speak, as they're called in Sudan, that, uh, that were designed to bolster Bashir personally and his support. So really what we're looking at now is the potential fissure and division between Bashir and officers in the Sudanese armed forces. If that, of course, expands, it's a possible a scenario of a palace coup that happened in the past in which you'd have um, Bashir taken out and another officer from the National Army taking over and calling for a transition. That has uh, happened in the past. So that is one scenario to look out for. So we see some indications of that, and many would say and suggest, as I would, that if the protests continue in the sustained way that they are continuing across the different parts of the country, it is likely that the military would take a position against Bashir. But so far, he's trying to make sure that that does not occur. Another aspect of the regime, which I think uh, needs to be emphasized, is the security apparatus which is really important because you have the Sudan army that I spoke about, but you have also the NIIS, the National Intelligence and Security Services. This is led by Islamist stalwart uh, by the name of Salah Ghosh. He's a very, very prominent intelligence officer who was the first really to cooperate with the United States on uh, counterterrorism uh, intelligence. And by all accounts, and most Sudanese are fully aware, that he has his own ambitions for power to replace Omar Bashir because he heads the, the National Intelligence and Security Services. And uh, while at the moment they are cooperating, of course, and supporting Bashir, he also has his own constituency and he has a great deal of power. In fact, a few years ago, he was actually detained, um, arrested uh, for attempting allegedly to plot a coup against Omar Bashir. So this is another aspect, another division that everyone is looking at to see what move he, Salah Ghosh, the head of the intelligence service, how he will react if these uh, demonstrations persist. And finally, although it shouldn't be finally, but uh, is, of course, the rapid support forces. These are essentially paramilitary forces created by the uh, regime, and they are related to the Janjaweed who uh, enacted all those war crimes or were used by the Bashir regime to pacify and, of course, you know, in many ways commit ethnic cleansing in Darfur. And so this is the latest kind of mutation in the Sudan, and they are using a great deal of force against the protesters, but by most accounts, most would... Uh, would say that their loyalty is always in question because they are literally uh, given about a million pounds each person uh, a month in order to be part of this force. So most people would say, and I, as I would, that if the balance of power tilts towards the demonstrators, it's not clear that they would actually be supporting the regime. Khaled Madani is an associate professor of political science at McGill University. He spoke with Shahram Aghamir about the ongoing popular uprising in Sudan. Please tune in next week for the second part of this interview.
And that's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. To get in touch, you can call us at 510-848-6767, extension 632, email vomekpfa at yahoo.com, connect with us on our Facebook at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, or follow us on Vomina Radio. Please join us next time for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. Mm-hmm.